Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we cover the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Lori Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. A Chinese warship came within 150 yards of hitting an American destroyer during a rare joint Canada-U.S. mission sailing through the Taiwan Strait. What are the implications? Well, we'll get into that. And are we ready to act on a policing problem here in Canada? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Concerns about what's going on with foreign interference continue, of course, and, uh, well, maybe the hearings are going to continue, too. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says that he is committed to keep David Johnson on as Canada's special rapporteur on foreign interference, despite a majority of MPs that voted to oust the former governor general from the job. Prime Minister told reporters that uh, Johnson's going to hold public hearings just like he promised he would on foreign interference right across the country over the next little while. This is a serious issue. Unfortunately, the leader of the opposition is not choosing to take it seriously. He's choosing instead to fling mud and make personal attacks. That's not responsible leadership. Uh, and back and forth it goes between uh, Mr. Polyev and the Prime Minister. <laughs> I wish, it's just bizarre the way that this whole thing is unfolding, isn't it? Anyway, to talk about that and lots more happening up in the, uh, the nation's capital, so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, who is the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, great to have you back. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks so much for, for having me, Bill. Oh, and by the way, I, great! Uh, I really enjoyed your op-ed piece in the Toronto, in the Globe and Mail earlier this week too about uh, Mr. Johnston and Mr. Polyev and, and some of the wordsmithing that seems to be going on these days. Uh, but the Prime Minister's point, which is the reason I wanted to run that clip this morning, I, I think it, it underscores I think one of the basic problems here. Uh, when you listen to the to the dialogue, some people would say diatribe, but coming out of uh, some of the, the folks in in Parliament these days. Uh, this is an important issue, but it's personal with these guys. And the, the, the back and forth personal insults are not moving the yardsticks ahead when it comes to trying to find out what we need to do about this, are they? That's a big problem, is that the issue itself around foreign interference and our own capacity to be able to deal with it seems to be sidetracked by, the again, you know these, these narratives that are essentially very personal, that the leaders are trying to get at one another. I think one of the things about this issue is that it serves as a kind of a a proxy or a lens for the conservatives to say a lot of the things that they want to say about Justin Trudeau. They want to say that the government is some combination of corrupt and incompetent. They want to point to the fact that Justin Trudeau is, you know, some kind of friends with with David Johnson and other members of the Laurentian elite and that this is one more example of Justin Trudeau being too close to his friends in the conduct of his business in as prime minister. Like there are so many ways that this is politically useful, frankly, for the conservatives. And I think for the liberals part, honestly, like, and this might be a little, you know, a little cynical for a, a start to a Monday morning, but I mean, I think they're probably thinking that given everything else that's going on in terms of the cost of living and the inflation crisis and the housing crisis and the healthcare crisis, are people really going to put foreign interference in elections as their number one issue, right? Like, can they kind of afford to wait and just make this thing go away and not hold the inquiry because they're going to try to get to the end of the, of the session, get out of there for the summer? You know, like they're kind of, I think there's probably making a bit of a gamble and given low voter turnout too, right? Like, I mean, do you care if there's a foreign interference in an election if you don't vote? Probably not. And so it's, 
I think it's it's kind of politically, they, they've both got their reasons for doing what they're doing. But then the interesting part last week for me was the NDP, where Singh comes out and says, well, you know, we have a lot of respect for Johnston. It's just that this is not the right role for him. And so that was an injection of a sort of respectful disagreement, which we don't see much in politics. Now, I thought it was a good moment for Singh. A couple of things about yeah he uh, he said although there seems to be kind of an overtone of, of favoritism you know he uh, yeah. it's it's not as blatant as, as as others have stated it but uh, that's that's the way he is but I think I think he probably perceives uh, what's going on here just as you described it that, that this is not worth breaking Parliament up for I mean if you hate Trudeau you paid him more now so what. Uh, and if you don't like Paul if you don't like him even more these days but you know if 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 the election issue if if in fact they were to do that it was, it was supposedly going to be foreign interference uh i think people would just be terribly upset about this as you say it's way down the list it's not that it's not important but it's way down the list right now and and you know i, I think oftentimes i think you mentioned this last week in the program these guys have got to start thinking outside the bubble. What's going on on Parliament Hill is not necessarily what's going on in the heads of the people from coast to coast to coast these days. They've got bigger issues right now. Exactly. And I think people like for, for most people, maybe, maybe for everybody, but for most people, elections are about priorities. It's about like, what is the thing that's most important to you? And what, or maybe what are the two or three things that are most important to you? Because people understand that government's got, I mean, there's all kinds of things that governments could focus on. It's not about deciding, um, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily black and white, either or that sort of thing. It's about what are we, what are we going to focus on given the finite resources that we have to deal with a, an array of very complex crises? But I think when it comes to something like foreign interference, people want to assume that the government is dealing with that already. You know, it's not it, it doesn't really, I think, for a lot of people belong in the same list as do you want to focus on health care? Do you want to focus on how this housing? Do you want to put more money into our defense spending so that we have a greater presence in the global stage? Those are choices. Those are priorities. But people think, yeah, but something like foreign interference. No, like people think the election, the integrity of the election itself is something that goes without saying and we should we should be able to assume that that's the case and so to ask people to put it on their priority list is just a sort of fundamental um departure i think from how people think about elections in canada which might be why the conservatives um are you know clever to use to the to whatever extent they are to use this as a lens for other things and you know in addition to the foreign interference piece and the liberals might be okay to sort of figure that when it comes down to it, people are going to vote on the basis of other things anyway. And I think even if, I mean, back in, remember back in 2011, when the Harper government lost, uh, the minority government lost confidence, ostensibly over contempt of parliament. But then you went into the election campaign, everybody forgot about that. Even the liberals yeah. forgot about that. Like they, they went into a campaign that was about many other things that had nothing really to do with a reason that prompted the election to begin with. And so I think if things get out of hand and the parties don't manage to kind of come to a way forward, you know, and somehow this blew up into an election campaign, I think the foreign interference issue would get lost pretty quick. Sure. I mean, because the mantra back then, uh, you know, even in, I guess it was, I'm going to try to count my minority governments here for, for the prime minister. Uh, the, the outrage was, you know, he, he called the election, you know, cost of you know, billions of dollars, it's a waste of money. Uh, by the time the election starts, people just forget about it and they key in on the issues. Which, by the way, is, is interesting because it was the focus of uh, Chantelle Bear's uh, column late last week, I'm sure you read, 
that mm-hmm. suggests that Mr. Polyev is actually wasting his chance to become prime minister. In other words, he's got a golden opportunity here to look like a leader. And instead, he just keeps coming back on, on, on this particular issue, which a lot of Canadians just aren't really paying attention to. Um, and, you know, you only get one shot in the spotlight. And this could well have been Mr. Polyev's. And I'm not so sure he's handling it properly. Well, yeah, I mean, especially given the Conservatives' um, clear willingness to to ditch a leader who loses an election, right? So, like, I mean, not that all the other parties won't necessarily want to do the same thing, but the Conservatives seem particularly, um, you know, mercenary about this. Like, if the if the leader doesn't win the election, then it's not too long before people start talking about when you're leaving. And so Polyev, I don't think, would get, why would he get more chances than Scheer? Why would he get more chances than O'Toole? I'm not sure he would. But it seems like this this tendency that that we can see in politics now and not just among the federal conservatives other parties do the same thing of this you know let's rip down the other person and we saw it last week when and, and in the the weeks ahead, uh, prior in the election in alberta the the attempt is not not as much on building your own support but it's ripping down the support of the other person that is only going to really pay off for the conservatives and for pierre polyev if they then make those voters, at least some of them, come to them, like it's not enough to tell people that Justin Trudeau shouldn't be prime minister anymore. You will also have to convince enough of them that you should. And I think it seems to me that's where he's having the issue. He's resonating on a lot of the complaints against Trudeau, but these voters aren't coming to him. So what are they going to do? Are they going to go to the NDP? And at a certain point, he maybe we're seeing that now, actually, because some polls have the liberals and pretty decent shape. Maybe mm-hmm. we're see it, seeing a kind of point of diminishing returns where his messaging, he's been leader for you know eight months now, I mean, more since September. Maybe the, this messaging is not having the kind of effect it did before because people are used to it and he's not bringing, he's not bringing out anything new. So I don't know. I don't know if the strategy is working or not. Yeah, you're right. I mean, again, in the National Post, Andrew McDougall wrote about that uh, last week as well, uh, suggesting that the Polyev's politics is, uh, you know, facts don't matter, but scoring points does. That that seems to be his raison d'etre. Uh, but you're right. Uh, just it was only a few weeks ago that the the Conservatives supposedly had a six point lead over the Liberals. They're tied now, uh, and and I don't know yeah. if it's because the Prime Minister's doing anything exceptionally well to win the hearts and minds of people. But I think people have just looked at Polyev and said, eh, I don't, I don't think so. Which is not to say, you know, if there's election, he's going to lose. But just he's not doing what he probably should be doing. And is, that is us taking advantage of his pulpit that he's got here right now. And, and you know, the, the fact is, is he's not g- gaining that public support that I, I'm sure he wanted to. And that's got to be raising some concerns, I would think. Oh, I think so too. I mean, as we've as we said, you know, the the conservatives are not interested in losing the next election at all. It's going to be interesting to see what happens if Polyev and I know you know I've talked about this before. If he manages to put together a plurality of seats in the next election, but not a majority, will anybody support him? Will the bloc support him? Um, or <clears throat> are we going to see the Liberals and the NDP to try to continue in the partnership that they have now? What would that look like? Are they anticipating that? Are they thinking about? trying to to legitimize and advance some form of whether it's a partnership government or a coalition government or the thing that they have now that would allow them to continue and to keep the house going in the event that Polyev came first but didn't have enough enough seats to actually win the thing i think we'd be in a really interesting space at that point but i think that's not what Polyev wants right he want he obviously wants to come first and he wants to trounce them the by-election 
in Manitoba for Candace Bergeson's old seed, Candace Bergen's old seat, where Maxine Bernier is running now, is going to be very interesting because we saw Polyev last week come out and, and basically compare Bernier to Trudeau and say, you know, these two, neither of these guys knows where Portage Lisker is on a map. You vote for either of them, you get a Trudeau government, that kind of thing. I wonder what's going to happen out there. I think if anything other than a complete trouncing of Bernier happens, then Polyev's going to have a lot of questions to answer about a possible continued rift in the conservative movement and and potential growing support for the PPC, which would also, you know, if he's not able to build his vote on in the center, he's not maybe he's not building it on the right either. And so then you get the sense that he's kind of running out of steam, which is not what the conservatives want. Do you get the sense, though, that uh, this this whole foreign interference thing is starting to fizzle out in, in the minds of, of the Canadian public? I mean, we're moving into summertime right now. Uh, way too much of this country is more concerned about their houses burning down because of these terrible yes. fires that are happening just about everywhere. Uh, and, of course, inflation. And now we're talking about another bank rate hike going on and on. Uh, once these guys break for summer, I, I just don't know that this thing's going to get a whole lot of air under its wings. I think you're absolutely right. I think, um, you know, as you say, for, for lots of people, there are other things that is that are occupying the front and center of their minds and foreign interference is not going to be it. And I think even if, you know, it's possible that, you know, multiple things are true at once, people might say, yeah, David Johnston wasn't the right person to do this, not because of anything to do with him, but because of the, the possible relationship with Trudeau and because of the association with the Trudeau Foundation, Trudeau should have picked someone else. But in the back of your mind, you might still be looking at the report and thinking, yeah, but I kind of, and I, I believe what he said. I just don't think he's the person who should have said it. And if that's the case, then you're probably going to be okay with this, right? Like in the end, you're not going to continue to be upset about it because Johnson was the wrong guy, right? Like, cause he did produce a report. And a lot of people I think are to the, I mean, to the extent that you're engaged in this at all, then you've had a look at the report and you might think, yeah, okay. Like he was, he again, he wasn't the right person, but there's a report here and he has reasons to conclude what he concludes. And this sort of gives you space to park this issue if you want to. And if you're not engaged in it, then you're not engaged in it. And so there is a political path here where this thing just goes away. Well, we'll talk about that in further detail, I guess, in the days and weeks ahead, because they are coming very, very close, of course, to their summer break. And that uh, it changes the landscape considerably. Laurie, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Really appreciate it. Thank you too, Bill. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Rather chilling story this past weekend. The United States military has released a video of what it calls an unsafe Chinese maneuver in the Taiwan Strait this past weekend. Now, the incident occurred on Saturday as the American destroyer USS Chung-Hoon and the Canadian frigate HMCS Montreal were conducting a so-called freedom of navigation transit of the strait. That's between Taiwan and, and mainland China. Uh, retired U.S. Marine pilot Steve Gagnon breaks down the reaction to what they saw. It was a very close call, but by the Chinese signaling that they were about to do it, the U.S. and the Canadian ships had a good heads up that it was about to happen, so the cameras were rolling and everybody caught it on film. The Chinese reaction was that the U.S. had no business being there, and they were just asking for it by provoking China, deliberately sticking China in the eye. But then we saw Secretary of Defense Austin in the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore say this was an outrageous act and that China is doing things that they're deliberately trying to provoke an incident at sea. So uh, this, this is scary stuff because there's already, as we say, you know, some some 
increasing tension between these countries, and, and that's one of the reasons I'm, su- I'm assuming there's military uh, maneuvers that are going on right there. Uh, to, to get some perspective on this, I want to welcome back to the program Thomas Hughes. Thomas is a postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. And, uh, uh, well, a, a very important day because of what happened here. Uh, is this something that we're blowing out of proportion, or was this a, a direct slap in the face to the Americans? What's going on here? I think the response to to that can be uh, both. Uh, I think it it was uh, very obviously uh, a um, high-profile maneuver that was done with a function in mind. I think as the the comment just uh, came through before this, the fact that the the transit of the Chinese ship was uh, telegraphed so far in advance, they will be absolutely aware already because we've been seeing um, news from the the Canadian side coming out that that cameras are on board. They know that this is going to be videoed. They know that the timing because of the Shangri-La dialogue that's happening was happening at the time um, was ongoing, that this was going to be something that was high profile. This was an opportunity um, for for China to to um, really emphasize their political position here. Um, so in that sense, it was a, a very uh, significant um, slap in the face is, is let's let's just go with that term. I think we can we can argue about what what, what might be a more appropriate way of putting it, but it absolutely was that that slap in the face to the U.S. It was a very public signal that that China is not only um, displeased with with U.S. and, and Canadian um, freedom of navigation maneuvers. It, it doesn't feel that those are appropriate in this region, um, but that it is prepared to signal that strongly on the international stage. So uh, that that is significant. The the flip side of this uh, again is that in a, in a sense whilst uh, having this occur at sea was was a little bit different um, it's very similar to the sort of uh, activities that we've seen um, particularly in the air in more recent years as well and we've seen Russia coming close to Russian aircraft coming close to to Canadian uh, US aircraft and the like and and the same last week as well with Chinese aircraft coming fairly close to to US military aircraft so i think we're we're seeing a a, a case where china is being um, more uh, obviously um, aggressive in the way that it is responding to freedom of navigation uh, passages and and uh, maneuvers in what the US and others consider international airspace. Uh, but this is also something which, which has been going on for a little while now. And you, I'm glad you brought that up because we've talked about this in the past. Uh, this sort of thing is going on all the time. I don't necessarily mean of this magnitude, but but you know they've got planes up there and and we've got planes up there and we're you know we're going back and forth and we're you know checking things out what they're doing and they're looking at what we're yep. doing and uh, you know and and maybe there are more confrontations that we're never going to hear about. But uh, yeah. this one, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the media were on board. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Mackenzie Gray from Global News uh, we've had on the yeah. program a number of times. He was on board that ship and and reported back from it and was actually watching this whole thing unfold uh, and it's a little daunting i guess when you actually see it in real time you know for the, uh, this is what this guy's doing uh was it for the intent of of intimidation i mean were they, were they trying to draw a response from the americans yeah so that's that's the great question and that's always the the big challenge that we have uh, and i think is absolutely fascinating area of international relations is is signaling how do we interpret the actions of others uh, what action uh, are they trying to signal uh, ideally of course whatever we do in international relations um, we, we the signal that we think we're sending is the one that that is received and um, so it, it's very important for us to think about what signal uh, china is is trying to send here and i think that the fundamental um, 
point of distinction is around uh, how the, the, the region is interpreted in terms of ownership, whether this is international waters or whether this is Chinese waters. So uh, that that is the, the, the first point here, um, that China is signaling that um, it does not believe that these freedom of navigation um, passages are actually appropriate. They don't see the region in the same way uh, as the United States does. So that, I think, is is the first signal of that, because by putting one of its own ships in the way and risking risking a really nasty uh, miscalculation accident, you know, if if something had gone wrong with, with that ship or, or with the U.S. ship, um, we could have seen a real catastrophe. So they're, they're really demonstrating that they are serious uh, about um, their position uh, in the region. And I think that's the, the fundamental signal is to, to the United States and to others in the region that, that um, China is prepared to risk quite a lot to promote its position. Uh, and, and that's important um, because that not necessarily creating a red line as such, but that does really influence how the U.S. is then going to approach um, seeing that region in the future. It's going to be fascinating to see whether the U.S. continues to to try and um, push uh, China to acknowledge these as international waters or whether we do see the U.S. step back slightly. That that reaction is going to be key. Well, exactly. And and from our standpoint, you know, as, as observers, I mean, it's one thing to have diplomats going back and forth, making rather acerbic comments. So we're, we're kind of used to that right now. And it almost seems like white noise. But boy, when you start playing chicken with warships, uh, you know, what are you going to do about this? Uh, that's that's really raising it to another level. And it's going to be interesting to see just how, uh, from a diplomatic standpoint, I guess, back to yeah. you guys now, uh, how they're going to respond. And, and certainly we'll be talking about it when we do see that response. Thomas, great to uh, spend some time with you today. Thank you so much for this. No problem at all. Delighted to speak to you. Take care. Thomas Hughes, postdoctoral fellow at the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Uh, kind of frightening stuff, of, uh, especially when you think of what could have been in that particular circumstance. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about law and order and law enforcement here in this country. Uh, as we mentioned just the other day, the RCMP is marking its 150th anniversary, uh, but not without wrestling with some questions about its future direction. Here's David Fraser with details. The RCMP's mandate has been debated before in Canada, including during the 2022 blockades of border crossings and downtown Ottawa. The Mounties have also faced calls for change in recent years over harassment and bullying of members, public anger about police brutality, and racism. The RCMP was also critiqued for shortcomings in their response to the 2020 mass shootings in Nova Scotia. Now, some pundits are wondering whether the Mounties should withdraw from small communities across Canada to fully concentrate on major federal files, such as cybercrime, fraud, and human trafficking. Others say the answer isn't curtailing the scope of the RCMP's mission, but finding ways to do things better. David Fraser, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. And that, that's pertaining to the RCMP, but not exclusively to the RCMP, as our next guest will tell us. Uh, there are a lot of concerns uh, about police servicing right across the country, but especially in lieu, in light rather of a couple of different uh, commission reports that have come out about uh, some of the things that have happened over the last little while and just what role police have. And quite frankly, what kind of support services uh, governments, uh, attorneys general, and people like that should be providing. Uh, he is uh, Michael Kempa. Michael is an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Michael, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks. Good morning, Bill. 
I, the, the thrust, uh, good morning to you too. The thrust of, as I read the last night, there's a concern here about who's supposed to do what. And it's not a bad idea for every organization every now and then to kind of step back once in a while and say, okay, who's responsible for this? Who's going to happen? What's going to happen here about this, et cetera? Uh, does that happen on a regular basis with tr- with police services? Or, or Because as you mentioned in, in the op-ed piece that I was reading here, especially in the Ottawa circumstance, with which you are, of course, greatly familiar uh, there seemed to be a lot of, well, it's not my responsibility, it's not my jurisdiction. Uh, there didn't seem to be any clear lines of who's supposed to do what. Well, no, there's a lot of confusion. And unfortunately, that confusion about who exactly does what in policing, planning, and operational uh, execution has been going on for 50 years here in Canada. And we've had report after review, after inquiry, after commission that has made this exact same set of points and really have laid down very similar recommendations for what to do about all of this. So we're running out of excuses not to clarify what's going on here. It's only a matter of time until we have another stress test and the same flawed system collapses. Well, as you mentioned right at the beginning, I mean, you know, two recent reports that, that, to which you refer here, the Public Order Emergency Commission, uh, that talked about uh, what was going on in Ottawa, and then, of course the Mass Casualty Commission about the tragic deaths in, in Nova Scotia. Uh, but not the only ones. As you, there have been other ones too. Uh, do these, after they're released publicly, just uh, go into somebody's blue bin, or uh, it, it, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of action on invariably some of the results and some of the uh, the, the recommendations that may come from some of these reports. Well, that's exactly been the case. Um, policing reform is very much political dynamite. If you get it wrong, you're going to be killed electorally. If you get it right, you may not get the credit uh, you need for it, particularly in the case of tampering around with changing the RCMP, reforming the RCMP. There's not a lot of votes in major urban centers across Canada for remaking the RCMP for the reason that big city dwellers don't have a lot of contact with the RCMP. So what I'll say about all of that is when you get all of these reviews and commissions and reports, what tends to happen with them is governments drag their feet They take the minimal amount of action at the very last moment when they are legally required to do so. uh, And they're very timid on implementing any of these recommendations. It makes you wonder, what are we spending these tens of millions of dollars on these inquiries and reviews for if we're not intending to fix the systemic issues, the structural issues that lead to the problems to begin with? But Michael, where's the top-down management in, in situations like this? I, I mentioned it just at the beginning about attorneys general, and, and I guess we could go into premiers here too, about you know who's calling the shots here, or is anybody calling the shots, or is this all just being done at, at a local level? I mean, there didn't seem to be an overall strategy or an overall plan, and, and I don't know, because you and I talked extensively as the Ottawa situation was, was unfolding. Uh, that there was never really any strong indication as to who was in charge here. Was it the province? Was it the federal government? Was it the RCMP? Uh, was it Ottawa police? I mean, who knew? Well, it's actually incredibly simple. Cities are in charge until things start to break down. And then it's very clear that provinces are supposed to step in quickly and with authority because the Solicitor General in Ontario or any other province for that matter is ultimately responsible for the delivery of adequate and effective policing across the province and if they don't step in then it falls to the feds that's the standard order of federalism so i want to see our provinces become much more activist in making sure that cities are developing and executing proper plans and it's a bit like any other service if you think about healthcare, 
The federal government sets national standards, and then the provinces come up with the plans that they oversee, and the municipalities basically execute. So we need federal leadership on the policing file, and this is where the Mass Casualty Commission came in with its recommendations, saying the feds should set some standards, require high levels of education, fan that out to the provinces, and then make money available where the provinces show that they have a plan that meets those federal standards. I mean, this is federalism 101. You'd get it in any introduction to political science course. And and that's the administrative side, which is, is such a key to this. I mean, somebody's got to be calling the shots. And and everybody within the that, that organization or in this endeavor, in, in both cases here, uh, has to understand who's calling the shots. And, and that seemed to be a gray area in both circumstances. Uh, there seemed to be, well, something I want to get into right now, which is as good a time as any to segue into this, uh, political interference in some of these decisions too. And that, that's got to be crippling for the people that are, are laser focused on the law and enforcement aspect of this. It's confused people, as I say, for a half century. The basic issue is operational independence of the police. This means that nobody ever tells the police how to exercise their powers of investigation, arrest, and charging. But everything else, planning, even asking questions or offering input into broad-level operations, this is all perfectly legal. Civilian oversight bodies should do it. Uh, the relevant politicians that are empowered legislatively, such as in the Solgen's office, should do it. But here's the key. They do it in writing so that if they're giving broad political direction to police, then everybody can see it and they can decide if these things which are legal are also appropriate. So just for example, if the Ford government, as we know they now did, told the Ontario Provincial Police, listen guys, we need you to focus on Windsor first before we get the situation in Ottawa under control because Windsor is a little bit more manageable, it's costing us billions of dollars. Well, that's political direction. But if that's in writing, it's not illegal, then the public can say, well, is that a reasonable set of political directions. I think most people would say it was, even though that was not convenient for the people of Ottawa. It's understandable. That's how it's supposed to work. And and similarly, of course, in the Nova Scotia circumstance, uh, you know, the interference about, uh, you know, did did Minister Blair ask, uh, you know, Commissioner Lucky to, to release the, the kinds of weapons that were released? Uh, did that fact that that happened uh, actually impede the investigation, as some suggested it did? Uh, we, we don't, you know, again, we're trying to, you, know, I, you want to give credibility to both sides here, but I mean, it, you know, you have to wonder what kind of an impact that had on the investigation, the ensuing investigation, which is a big part of this too. Well, that's it. It messes up investigations and it messes up the culture of police organizations. Because if these things aren't clear, for example, the head of the RCMP, the commissioner, answers directly to the Minister of Public Safety. They're in fact a deputy minister. So if you're a sort of serving at the pleasure of your boss, you're looking upwards. And even if they don't ask you for something explicitly, you're going to be anticipating what you think they may want from you. In other words, you're going to be doing with the RCMP what you think the minister wants. That's not managing in terms of what the RCMP needs as an organization. So that's been going on for decades in the RCMP is a big reason why the culture and management structure of the organization is so poor. That's why a lot of people have said you need to tripartite structure, make the RCMP accountable first and foremost to a board of governors, insulates it a little bit from the minister, and then you'll have commissioners that aren't worried about pleasing their ministers so much, they're going to worry more about what needs to be done to fix the RCMP. 
But is there an appetite, Michael, to actually do that? As you say, if you get it wrong, uh, invariably you're going to pay a political price for that. But, you know, and you mentioned the RCMP, you're, you're dealing with a federal institution here. Uh, with police services, especially local, whether it's Ottawa, Hamilton, London, Toronto, whatever the case might be, uh, the, the Attorney General has to have some part in, in any sorts of revamping that's going to be happening right now. And, and I don't see anybody even suggesting that they need to take giant strides here. No, in fact, we're rolling back in Ontario. We've had a piece of policing legislation uh, reformed, uh, approved since 2019. It's now 2023. We're still waiting on the regulations to see that legislation become active. In other words, proclaimed. And as we've been going through this four years, we've been chipping away at the reforms. Just for example, MCC says, let's have higher educated officers. Doug Ford, a couple of months ago, says, let's actually reduce the requirements. We're going in the wrong direction in Ontario. And that's why I'm laser focused right now on what else are we going to see in the reg in the regulations that come forward in the next couple of months. But I'm worried that we're going to go even further backwards than these reports have recommended. And the, I can tell you the very next time that same flawed system is stress tested, whether we're talking an Indigenous land claims pre uh, protest, a mass protest related to say something like inflation, anything to do with uh, foreign interference, the system will only collapse again. And I say that because it's happened 15 times or more in the last 50 years. Well, and your point's well taken about what's going on. I mean, we're just talking now about the, the Ring of Fire in Northern Ontario, and, and are they going to develop that? I know there are some Indigenous groups up there that are, are dead set against that. Uh, we've seen confrontation. Didn't we just uh, celebrate, acknowledge the anniversary uh, of, of a number of different things, you know, whether it's shutting down rail lines, uh, whether it's overtaking, uh, you know, housing developments in Caledonia. We all, we all know that as well. Uh, and, and police get thrust into this. Uh, so in other words, and when that does happen, and like you say, that oftentimes there's no warning that it's going to be happening, uh, they get thrust into there with the same old processes that they've been using all along, which probably are not really applicable uh, for those circumstances in the 23rd century. But, you know, you, you get flustered sometimes saying, well, where are you going to decide that, okay, we need to make some change, we need to improve so that doesn't happen again? Well, that's the thing, is that the other losers in this equation are police officers on the ground, because yeah. as you say, they're thrust into a bad structural situation, uh, basically following old policies. This is no good for the community, and it's bad for police services there where you have a breakdown in the policing of protest, and inevitably violence ensues, and then you have another inquiry that brings forward very similar sets of recommendations. I think that the MCC, the Mass Casualty Commission, was on the right track, where it basically said, it's time for federal leadership. We live in a federation. Just like in healthcare, the feds have to step in with definitive national standards sort of lead the charge a little bit, and they've got a great opportunity to do that with their own RCMP, and then have the problems, uh, the provinces rather, line up and produce their plans to get that federal funding. Would that improve relations between policing and communities? I mean, let's face it, one of, one of the factors here, you know, it's not a, even a reform, but it just seems to be a, a knee-jerk reaction as well. Uh, they perform poorly. It's time to defund police, which, which is really counterproductive to what needs to be done here. Uh, but if, in fact, we, we find that there are uh, political leaders that do have the courage to be able to move forward on some of these recommendations, I, I got to think, Michael, that that's going to improve community relations with policing uh, and the work that they need to be doing in that community. 
Absolutely. To my mind, the real future of policing is to be a key pillar in community safety and well-being programs that uh, cities run with provincial funding. So just a great example I can give you. I, I was fortunate to spend a little time in the tent cities in Edmonton uh, a couple of weeks ago. Now, if you go to a tent city, you're talking about thousands of unhoused people where opiate addiction is a serious problem. Uh, there's a fire risk. People die routinely in fires and tents. This is obviously not a problem that is resolvable by straight up law enforcement. You can't just go and arrest thousands of people and put them in jail where drugs are freely available anyway, will do nothing about their opiate problems. But it's so dangerous in these settings. You can't send just a bunch of emergency response workers, treatment uh, professionals and social workers to go into a tent city to help people uh, get their lives back on track. They've got to go in there with the support of police officers simply because the work is so dangerous. So where Edmonton police have set themselves up as a little bit of a pillar supporting EMS, emergency response, supporting social work and other agencies that get active in tent cities, you start to see a little bit of a result. It's a fascinating exercise that communities have to pay attention to. And uh, I'm so glad you were able to write the piece and spend some time with us this morning, Michael. As always, thank you so much for this. Thank you very kindly. Take care. Michael Kemp, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa, and, and author too, by the way. He's got a book coming out soon uh, about uh, the Ottawa circumstance uh, back in 2022, and of course the Rouleau Commission that uh, looked into and analyzed that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.